0: Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Chief
1: Justice, and may it please the court. Our opinion next turns to the problem of
2: what the judicial role should be. I hate mornings. There's nothing worse than waking up from your dreams to a cell whose six by nine confines stretch into the horizons of your future.
3: This is life of the law. And I'm Life of the Law's senior producer, Tony Gannon. You guys probably don't know my voice very well. Most of my work at Life of the Laws is behind the scenes. I'm filling in for Nancy Mullane this week. And I think Nancy asked me to fill in because I do have a connection to the episode you are about to hear. Live Law San Quentin. About two years ago, uh, Nancy invited me in to San Quentin to this event. Nancy, for context, was my uh, air mentor at the time. Association of Independent radio producer organization that some of you might be familiar with. So she invited me in um, and it was my very first time going into San Quentin. What I experienced that evening blew my mind. Um, now Nancy and I have gone back and forth a bit on what it means to air something that was a live event um, and I think there is a lot to be said about keeping live events as live events only, and if you miss it, that's sort of it. That's that you know, that's the point, um, is to be there. But the power of this episode will speak for itself. The, the men that you're about to hear really are putting themselves in a vulnerable place, and there's an intimacy to the stories, and there was a, a, a an impact of being there with them. Um, I ended up doing a sort of video for the inmates. Um, it was my first exposure, I think, to working with media related to inmates and, and realizing that the work that I did on the outside had a real, a real impact to the people on, on the inside. But more than anything, I think I learned um, it has to do with why we do what we do, why we do the work in San Quentin. Some people might just have that fundamental question, and I certainly have had this discussion with friends and family. Quite simply, I believe that the work that we do here at Life of the Law and with podcasting in general, the sort of medium um, that we're contributing to, um, has the possibility of enriching people's lives. And I believe that going into San Quentin and working with inmates on stories, giving them uh, experience that they would not necessarily have without us is a very valid way of spending my time professionally. It comes down to um, sharing with men inside my experience and being able to relate to men that I probably in, in the majority of other contexts would not be able to. It comes down to that, that I believe in this work and I believe that what we do is important. Today that work continues, um, subsequently I became more involved with Life of the Law um, and now I'm going into San Quentin regularly. I'm helping produce um, a couple of stories with a few of the inmates um, that we'll be airing in this coming year. So I wanted to thank you guys also for a great year with Life of the Law. We experimented with some stuff this year, namely the in-studios. So maybe you have heard my voice in that context. And this is a good time to mention that we will probably be doing a little bit more of that in the coming year, uh, changing up our format. Um, and we'd love to hear from you guys. We would love to know what you guys think of how we're doing things. Whether you uh, just totally hate it and prefer uh, to do the, to continue with our our, our more formal sort of uh, approach to to each episode Um, but uh, we're hoping that you do like them and that you will uh, give us your feedback so thank you very much have a happy holiday have a happy new year and we'll see you in 2018 thank you
0: we begin with the story by Lawrence Pella an inmate at San Quentin
4: recently I had the opportunity to play someone living an alternative lifestyle with our Garden Chapel drama team. And I was on stage running around, having the time of my life, talking about, "Uh uh-uh. No, you didn't. Howl up, howl up, howl up. I am all woman, honey and still more than a man than you will ever be. Okay. (laughs) No, I never would have been able to do that a year and a half ago when I first got to San Quentin. Like making a fool of myself and being vulnerable was out of the question in prison. Now, if you would have known me eight years ago before I was incarcerated, you might have seen more of that. But I lost so much of that playful spirit over the years And a lot of it has to do with the stereotypes and attitudes we create and associate with being in prison. How men have to be tough. They're heartless, vicious. It's so serious that the inmates on a maximum security yard, they don't just stand there. That's not what you see. They get their feet set, cock their shoulders back, stick their chest out, flex their arms a little bit, and they post up, dudes don't just walk across the yard. (laughs) That's not what you see at all. They turn their prison swag back on where they got their chest out, shoulders back. and they bail across the yard. That's what you see. And you can't play games in that kind of environment because it could seriously cost you your life. And so myself, I had to fall right in line with it. It was my first time ever being in prison. I was sent to a maximum security facility with a 46 year sentence for various armed robberies. And so I was gonna ensure my survival, indeed. Now I didn't realize how much it all had affected me until the first time my mom came to visit me when I was in prison. Now she came all the time when I was in the county jail, but it's not the same because it's no contact. And I've always felt like my mom was all I had. And because she always emphasized being affectionate and showing those you love how you feel about them, whenever I saw her, it was never a problem for me to give her a kiss on both cheeks, I would hug her, my mom's about 5'7", and so I'm 6'5", so I'm resting my chin all in her shoulder and snuggling up with her, you know. it's my mom, I'm gonna love on her, that's what I am gonna do. Now up to this point, it had been three long years since I would seen her, and in prison, the only contact I'm having is all aggressive. I'm talking about I'm battling on a basketball court with people, I'm working out, getting my money, Even when I shook somebody's hand, it was real assertive. It was all, yeah, what's up? And so up to this point, when I'm going out there on a visit and I start thinking about one of my mom's long, tight hugs, it honestly made me nervous. I mean, I started sweating. My stomach started bubbling. For real, my whole body was tingling all from the thought of loving on somebody like that. And this is my mom. I love her more than anything. And so it was so bad that when I get there, I actually give her a church hug. For y'all who don't know what a church hug is, that's when it's all arms, right, and it's no body. That's the church hug. And so, even though my mom was like, boy, what is wrong with you? If you don't hug me good, and I got to come in close and actually hug her, it had still frustrated me that hugging my mom was now foreign to me. That really hurt me. And what it showed me was, was that the prison environment I was in, it had changed me and I was institutionalized by it. The problem was there weren't no groups, programs, or nothing like that that would help me deal with feeling like I wasn't myself because I was confused, because all these feelings had happened without me even knowing about it. And that made me angry because there was nothing I could do to stop it. I couldn't change how I felt. And because of that, more than anything, I was afraid because I didn't know who it would eventually turn me into. What kind of person was I if I can't show those I love how I feel about them? What kind of man would I be if I couldn't be intimate with the person I love most in this world? But because of my environment, I didn't have time to deal with none of that. It would all have to get pushed aside and left to work itself out. I come to San Quentin four years later and I get involved with groups like the Artistic Ensemble. And it's a performing arts group which expresses art through dance and movement. And the first time I'm in there, I'll never forget it. It's a tall Mexican guy in there. And he looks like a young Richard Gere, right? Los Dini, y'all know who he is. And he's holding this short little Asian guy like he's a baby, he's cradling him, right? He's rocking him, looking down on him, talking about, oh, goo goo gaga, I love you. And so I'm looking like, where do they do this at? What is going on? But everybody else in the room is watching it like it's a normal interaction. And so I'm like, wow. What I see is that this type of environment, this is the truth. There's no facade, there's no games being played. This was real. I felt a whole different spirit at San Quentin. Coming to the Garden Chapel was especially different because at higher security facilities, the brothers in the chapel are still embracing each other like people you just met. Stiff, separated hugs. What's up? God bless you. And that's it. But not here. Here, brothers are walking around with their arms around each other's necks. They're giving each other warm, open-arm hugs. And these are other races. On the other facilities, there was a racial boundary that had to be maintained. But not here, not at San Quentin. And that's why I like it here, I love it here. Because the atmosphere here allows you to truly be yourself. Because of the men here, like Anand Khan, who is the number one trailblazer for the prison renaissance. Huh? All all of these men here who are about promoting, embracing our humanity because of all of them, even though I'm in prison, I've certainly found a home away from home. And that's why when I'm on visits now and I'm out there with my mama, man, I love on her like I'm a five-year-old little boy. I'm not lying. I kiss her, I hug her and squeeze her tight like I'm never gonna let her go. And the most beautiful thing about it is, in this place, in this environment, I don't feel like I have to let her go. Thank you for listening.
0: That was Lawrence Pella. Watani Steiner began his relationship with San Quentin State Prison as an inmate more than 40 years ago.
5: Less than a year ago, I was a California state prisoner serving a life sentence. And although I spent 26 years behind the walls of San Quentin, the last time I actually walked the streets of this country as a free man prior to January of this year, was 1969, that was 47 years ago. Now we certainly don't have enough time for me to bore you with details of my whole life story. So let me just give you a thumbnail sketch of my journey and make one brief observation. For those of you who don't know, I escaped from San Quentin in 1974 because my life was in serious danger in prison. I fled the country to South America, where I remained and escaped fugitive for 20 years. In 1994, I made a deal with the State Department and voluntarily surrendered to U.S. authorities in exchange for my family being given safe passage to the U.S. I was brought back to San Quentin to serve out the remainder of my life sentence. I realized tonight that I just might be the only person in this country to have successfully escaped from San Quentin and then volunteered to return. (laughs) Not only once, but volunteered to come back to this prison twice. (laughs) Once in 1994 and then again tonight. I just hope they don't decide to keep me as long as they did the first time. So Lieutenant Sam Robinson, I'm trusting that you will let me out these tonight. (laughs) For the thousands of fathers who are currently in prison in San Quentin and this country, it is certainly no secret that our children are collateral damage. Yes, sadly but truthfully and rarely ever acknowledged or discussed by political pundits and policymakers, millions of children are innocent casualties of our criminal injustice system. It is one of America's dirtiest little secret and a national tragedy. After being in prison for so long, for so many years, separated from the lives of my children, who by the way, did not get the promised safe passage from the US government until 11 years and almost their entire childhood had passed. I had made up my mind that since they had all grown up during my incarceration, I had missed my chance to be fully present in their lives. I actually believed that my children no longer needed me as their father. After all, I had missed practically all their birthdays, their school graduations, family picnics, marriages, and so many holidays have passed without my presence. And most importantly, I had missed my God-given right as a father the right to lower my voice and strike terror into the hearts of all my daughter's conniving little boyfriends. (laughs) Yes, why wouldn't my children, after all these years of my absence, need a father now? Although I was separated from my own children during my incarceration, I have found myself being a surrogate father to so many young prisoners who have also become my surrogate sons. As with my family, some of my sons I scolded because they were hard-headed and difficult to reach, while others would argue with me, repeatedly ask annoying questions, and half listen to what I had to say. Yes, there were those I had become disappointed with, and those that made me so very proud of them. I recall one of my many prison sons who came to prison when he was just 16 years old, unable to read or write and too embarrassed to admit it. He would not ask for help for fear of being exposed to the other prisoners. Instead, he chose to withdraw, losing all contact and communication with his family. Like a father, I tried to give the love the time, and the patience to this young man that I was denied the opportunity to give to my own children. If I couldn't be their father, I would try to be somebody's father. In addition to helping him learn to read and write, I tried to encourage him, build up his sense of self-respect, and help him sort out his own identity as a man. He would later go on to get his GED and AA degree. When I was paroled, he was taking a corresponding course to obtain his BA. All he needed was a father and a chance. If anyone here is holding on to the assumption that your children do not need you anymore because you have been separated from them for so long, or because they are grown, Let me assure you that your assumption is far removed from reality. Once I had been released from prison, I first began to experience overwhelming feelings of anxiety, for I now had full access to all of my children, their scars, their hurts, and all their traumas. I was suddenly confronted with the difficult day-to-day experience of being a father. I did not realize it at the time, but prison serves as a kind of buffer to our relationships with our children. It hides from us their nightmares and their dreams. I quickly found out that my children needed love and healing. They needed both a reassuring embrace for me as well as a silent and sacred space to scream. Why did you leave me, Daddy? I hate you, and I love you, too. The human heart must ask, where is this love, and who in the hell locked up compassion and justice? It is my hope that one day you all will find out, just as I have, that no matter how long the state decides to contain us under a broken criminal justice system, Our children are the ones who suffer the most. And no matter how many years you are incarcerated, when you are released, you will too find that your sons and daughters still need their dads. My message to every father in prison and to all of the fathers here in this room who are not in prison, who feel they are no longer needed in their children's lives, is to find a way to stay connected or get connected to your children. For me, while in prison, I poured most of my time and energy into writing. Writing became my passion, my salvation, and it created a lifeline from my heart to my children's heart. It literally kept me sane and connected to my children during my 21 years of re-incarceration. I continue to write to them each and every day, even when there was no response. Against any temptation to despair, I urge you to find a creative way to stay connected with your children. In closing, I'd like to leave a message and a poem to all my brothers Who are currently locked up behind bars. The message is crucial. Discover and explore your creative passion. If you have children, that passion, whatever it may be, can help provide that difficult and necessary bridge to them. A starting point in building a creative relationship that can sustain all the separation, hurt, anger, and loss that is intrinsic to a having a parent in prison. So if you would just indulge me, I'd like to share this short poem with you. It is a poem I wrote 10 years ago while a prisoner here at San Quentin. I titled it, I Write for My Children. I write for my children in words only hearts can fathom. I write for my children, pen drenched in love storms and magical poems. Each alphabet a teardrop, every page a river. I write for my children, no longer can they see my glow. A soft and tender sadness illuminates their souls. I write for my children to invoke their spirits, faint breaths upon my face as sprinkles of giggles tickle my lobe. I write for my children to rescue my drowning faith in a pool of regret. I write for my children in a language that dances on lyrical islands and miracle streams. I write for my children Because writing is a blanket I weave around their hearts. Thank you.
0: That was Watani Steiner.
6: Now everybody locked up worldwide. Yeah. They got me dressed in a paper suit, shackled on a gray goose. Looking out the window, wishing I could cut these chains loose. You know I California state. Tamper with the evidence to make the jury hate you. LA Times articles paint up a different picture. Don't believe the hype they type just to convict you. DA coaching the witnesses to switch the testimony up. You stuck, they gon' get you. Murder was the case that they gave me. No Johnny Cochran, no dream team to save me. Falling to my knees, asking God for
0: forgiveness. When you first meet Azrael Ford, an inmate, he can be intimidating. He's tall, his arms are covered in tattoos. And behind the walls,
7: he's known as Big Az. Where I grew up in San Diego, California, it was an environment that was fueled by crime and drugs. That's what I grew up knowing. And knowing that, I developed a sense of hatred and anger towards the world. You know, I was denied what I felt was the normal life. And the people around me, they emanated that same feeling. It was like it was us against the world. Everybody was out to get us. We didn't matter. So I started to take on this mantle of hatred and anger and lash out at the world. I started getting locked up when I was about 14 years old. I've been in and out of juvenile hall jail and prison since that time. I think I have a combined total uh, amount of freedom of maybe two years in that time. Well, the story goes, as I started to do this stuff and I started to go to juvenile hall in jail, I started to feel like I was validating the person I believed I was. It didn't really set in until I hit prison. When I hit California State Prison, I found a world where I belonged. Hatred and violence were the norm. You were only somebody if you could take that on and wear it like a suit of armor. So what did I do? I became that noble dark knight of this hellish world that they call prison. But instead of a steel suit of armor, I covered myself in hateful tattoos, violent tattoos of people being beat up and killed. Tattoos that screamed, I hate you because you're black. I hate you because of your religion. I hate you because of your sexuality. I hate. And I thought, that's who I was. It's who I became. And so I walked in this world and I showed myself off. I said, look at who I am. I'm big ass. I hate the world. And I will hurt you if you cross my path. Some of the people at San Quentin know me from other prisons. And they're amazed at who I am today. Because if you could have seen who I was yesterday, you would be I don't wanna be in the same room with this guy. This guy, is he's the definition of violence and hatred. Well, the funny thing that happened, I end up at High Desert State Prison, probably at that time, the worst prison in the state of California. I'm strung out on heroin. I'd just gotten out of the hole, which is the administrative segregation for an involvement in the stabbing of another inmate. And I'm sitting in my cell on a lockdown. And something funny happens. I notice my reflection in the mirror. And so I just stop and I start to talk to that reflection. And I go, Az, who are you? What are you doing, look where you're at. You can't see your mom, she's 13 hours away in Southern California. You're sitting here, all the people around you, they're only happy when you're committing acts of violence. They're only happy when you're telling them to commit acts of violence. And I, The funny thing is I probably look like a crazy person but I answered myself back. And I said to Az, you're not happy with who you are. This isn't the real you. Look at this miserable life that you're living. And so I continued the conversation. I go, what are you going to do about it? And the mirror talked back to me and it said, you know what? You're going to stop. You have the power to stop. There's something inside of you. There's an inner beauty. You just have to find it. So I said, you know what? I'm going to do it. And I pushed all the tobacco because we could smoke back then. Now it's, now it's illegal for us to smoke, but back then you could smoke. I pushed all the tobacco to the side. I told my cellie, I'm done doing drugs. I don't want any part of this. I need to live for me. I need to be selfish. So I couldn't really take off the armor of tattoos, but I took off that mantle of hatred. I said, you know, I don't need to be violent. And I'm not gonna say that it happened overnight because it was a rocky road. I'm one of those guys that was kind of like a pinball when I moved, I usually moved to like six prisons in a year because I had a past that followed me. So then I ended up at San Quentin. That was two years ago. And when I got here, I was still struggling with that transformation. It was still hard for me because it's a process. It's not something that happens, you know, like in a month. So when I got here, I was like, I don't know if I want to stay here because I'm not, this is a prison that, this isn't my type of prison, but they kicked me out to the yard and I said, all right, I'm here, you know, I'm not going to transfer right away because it's, For anybody that's ever been in prison, they know, for you out there, you don't, a transfer from Southern California to Northern California is three days of hell. And I didn't want to ever experience that again. So so I said, I'm going to give San Quentin a try for at least a month. I'm going to give it 30 days. If I don't like it, I'll just jump on somebody and I'll leave because that's the person that I was. You know, I was still going through that transformational phase. Then I started to see people I knew from other prisons, and they were doing groups, and I saw their change. I saw people that I had shot heroin with before who were now facilitating groups who had made these dramatic changes. And I, you know, I want some of that because I do want to be this better person. So I started to investigate the groups that they had, Alliance for Change, uh, The Last Mile. And then I heard about this group, Shakespeare. But, so I go, you know, I've read some Shakespeare in school. I'll go check it out. I mean. What kind of prison? Shakespeare? So I go into this group and I walk in, and there's this group of guys, and it's an elected group of guys, every race, every gender, and I go, all right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, they're in there and they're dancing, and I remember them. I don't dance. So I was like, okay. And I was kind of standing on the fringes of the group and I was watching them dance and they're all going in the circle and they're rapping. They're like, come on, come on, get in. And I was like, I don't know. And I was kind of easing back towards the door. Like I might turn around and run. But you can look at me. I'm not one that really takes to fear very well. I'm a big guy. You know, I like to show people I'm not afraid. So I go, I'm going to stick it out. So I stuck it out there and I went and danced and it's true what they say. White guys don't have rhythm, but... (laughs) I did it, you know, and I got in there and, and they were like, they were egging me on. And I was like, you know, these people are pretty nice. So I'm going to continue to do this. I'll be back next week. Thanks for signing me up. So I go back next week and they go, Hey, you know, we're glad you're here. Now they have me pretending to be a butterfly, pretending to be a bee. (laughs) And I was like, really? But okay, I'm in, you know, I'm like, (laughs) so, so then the, Play comes and it's Julius Caesar and everybody in there, you're going to make a perfect Julius Caesar. I don't know. I've never acted before, but I get cast as Julius Caesar. Oh, hell, Caesar. Yeah. <laughs> so we practice and we start to develop this, this bond, this, this brotherhood. It was, it was strange that these were people before in this world that I hated that I, I wouldn't talk to you. I didn't want anything you had. I would complain if you moved into the cell next to me. But now I'm sitting there and I'm pretending to be your king and you're pretending to be my brother. And it was just this experience that I had never understood. I'd never experienced it, but so we did it and we practiced the play. And then there was the day of the play and me and this guy, Lee Maverick, he's a young black man. He's probably about a hundred pounds lighter than I am. So imagine that. And we had made this scene where when Caesar dies he's gonna carry me out over his shoulder and they were like you can't you can't put that in there it's it's gonna take up too much time and we kind of we're gonna put it in there we have to do it it's really dramatic so they kill me on stage i'm laying there and maverick comes up and he pulls me over and he kind of heaves me up on his shoulder well the tunic i'm a big guy the tunic that they had for me was really tight so (laughs) (laughs) so when he put me on his shoulder it kind of lifted up and my butt was hanging out and he made his big growl, oh! he goes, I'm 270 pounds. And he walked out of the chapel with me on his shoulder. Now my butt's hanging out and I can feel the wind and I can, I can hear people laughing, but I have to play dead. So I'm just laying there. And it was at this moment that it set in that like, this guy carried me over his shoulder. He's not just, an, he's my brother, we're friends. It's like this is the perfect picture of what the world can be if people just come together. And so here I am playing dead, butt hanging out, just thinking, you know what? I've reached it. I found that inner beauty. I'm as again. I'm the man that I was supposed to be. And the growth it was, it was it was finalized. Now what I'm doing is I'm manicuring that flower and I'm creating that beautiful rose because that's what a lot of the men in here are. They're roses roses that didn't have any nurturing. And once they nurture themselves, they become these beautiful flowers that are ready to just amaze the world. Thank you.
0: That was Azraal Ford. Sports plays a big part in the world behind the walls of San Quentin and Aaron Taylor an inmate has the play-by-play.
1: Hello again basketball fans and welcome to one of the games I swear to God you're gonna love this this is a game that only you're gonna see right here at San Quentin inside of the Garden Chapel. Over here to visitors, we have the all-time all-star Los Angeles Lakers featuring Magic Johnson at point guard, Jerry West at shooting guard, Kobe the Black Mamba Bryant at small at small forward, at power forward, we got Kareem Abdul Jabbar, and at center we have Wilt the Stilt Chamberlain, and they're gonna play against the current NBA champion, NBA 2015 Golden State Warriors, featuring Steph Curry. who will be known as Mr. Magnificent from this point forward. How's everybody doing tonight? My name is Aaron Taylor. I'm the voice of San Quentin sports. It's only at San Quentin that I could come and allow a talent that was formed about 25 years ago to finally prosper into what it's supposed to be. When I got off the bus in 2011, I did not want to be at San Quentin State Prison. West Block looked like a bomb had hit it. (laughs) And I'm far away from home. So when I arrive at San Quentin, I go out to the basketball court, which I do at every prison I've been to, and I watch the basketball players, and after a while I start seeing the talent there, and I stand underneath the basketball pole, and I do play-by-play. That's where the rebirth of Chick Hearn comes in. I can't play basketball, (laughs) but I can talk about people that play basketball. (laughs) Let me get back to the game for a minute. All right, we're halfway through the first quarter right now. Kobe Bryant with the ball outside the three-point line. He's looking over. Magic Johnson with the ball. He's at the top of the key. Back to the bats. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar makes a cut. Here comes Steph Curry. Pass goes over the top. Oh, Jerry West outside. 25 foot in the face. That was in the face. A deep three-point, 25-foot shot by the logo Jerry West. Ball's inbound, Draymond Green brings the ball into Steph Curry. Mr. Magnificent walks the ball up, he's got Swagger Man all over him. (laughs) Steps across the timeline, into the post, bogus there, here comes Iguodala. Iguodala cuts across the middle pass, goes down low, Iguodala with a fallaway face, 12-foot face, off the glass, it was a kiss. (laughs) So, for a long time, Like some of the other presenters here, I didn't really know who I was because prison changes you, but San Quentin is a place where you can come and become exactly who you were meant to be to prepare you to go home. Right now I'm doing play-by-play for basketball for the Golden State Warriors. They come inside, millionaires, billionaires, and they play basketball with individuals who've been convicted of some of the least and most heinous crimes. But there's something about sports when you step on that court. It doesn't matter if you're a billionaire or you're a convicted felon. It's about what you can do on that court. About your shot, about your dunk, about the swag that you bring to the game with you. And for me, as an individual who likes to talk about sports, as an individual who loves basketball and coaches it, this is probably one of the highest points I could ever get at. Let me get back to the game again. We're just out our halftime. <laughs> Wilt to stilt with the ball. Oh, we, we got another rumor about Will sleeping with the more women. I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> Wilt with his back to the basket to the ball. Back to the basket, pass goes out to Magic Johnson. Jerry West with the ball again, feed the ball to the Black Mamba. We got the Black Mamba versus Mr. Magnificent. This is it right here. This is the way Magic Johnson passed the torch off to Jordan. And this is the way it's gonna go right now. Steph Curry with the ball on the steel takes him to the front court. He backs up between the legs. There's a crossover on Kobe Bryant. He just broke his knee. He's down on the ground. Steph Curry with a shot, goes up in the face. A deep three-point facial shot. Wet net, that's what we call that, in the ghetto. That's one of the moments where you just absorb the moment right there. This is why Sam Robinson, Juan Haynes, and the members of San Quentin News hired me, right? This is why the guys in SQPR like me, because I come and I bring another dynamic that you only get at a prison like San Quentin. You don't get this anyplace else. We're not having this anyplace else. Only here. Only here. This is where rehabilitation is actually taking place. You're looking at rehabilitation right now. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. Let me get back to the game. <laughs> Draymond Green with the ball, back to the basket. Magic Johnson's on the bench right now. They brought in James Worthy, he's defending him. Big game, James, back to the basket. Bow arm in the back of Draymond Green. Draymond Green with the baseline spin. Oh, slam dunk in the face of Worthy. Magic Jackson back, came back into the game. Ball goes in, Steph Curry with the still step back jumper. In the face, another deep three-point facial. Kobe Bryant takes the ball. Another steal by Steph Curry. Mr. Magnificent, a 35-foot in the face. Oh, my God, this is over with right now. The score is 150, the Lakers 112, and the Lakers lose this game. Sorry, Laker fans. It's not happening today. The Golden State Warriors are the champions. Now, don't anybody steal my hashtag? I am hashtag (laughs) chick. It's only at San Quentin that the general manager of the Golden State Warriors comes in and brings his team with him. And they stand on the sideline and they ease up next to him and they say, hey, Haroon, when you gonna give me a nickname? (laughs) Because you come in here and it's about basketball, as I said a minute ago. And this is what rehabilitation looks like. I want to thank everybody who presented before me. I want to thank you for allowing me to come up here and listen to me. And hopefully, I'll be doing this soon for NBA team near you.
0: (laughs) That was Aaron Taylor.
6: Now, everybody locked up worldwide, yeah. They got me dressed in a paper suit, shackled on a gray goose, looking out the window wishing I could cut these chains loose. You know I California State to Tamper with the evidence to make the jury hate you. LA Times articles paint up a different picture. Don't believe the hype they type just to convict you. DA coaching their witnesses to switch the testimony up. You stuck, they gon' get you. Murder was the case that they gave me. No Johnny Cochran, no dream team to save me. Falling to my knees asking God for forgiveness, tears falling down my face on some study in the scriptures, praying for no
0: the one can no know what it's really is like tragic. to face the moment when you're sentenced for a crime unless you you've been God there. Philip Melendez I up, has the story.
8: I'd like to start my San Quentin story by telling you all something that I'm not. One thing I am not is some goody-goody who thinks he's a great guy now for taking all these groups at San Quentin. (laughs) Because when I look at what I've done, which is commit two murders, I know that I can never call myself a great guy. I've taken lives. I've hurt two families in ways that I can never fix. I've hurt my family, my community, The harm I've caused affects so many people in ways that are immeasurable, so calling myself a great guy just isn't possible. But what I can attribute to San Quentin and all these groups here is my ability to look deeper into my life. I can look at causative factors. I can look at my weaknesses and issues that led me to act the way that I did. I can empathize with the pain and devastation that I've caused But it took me coming here to really see it. I mean, prior to coming here, I've had introspective moments. Certain events in my life had shown me that I needed to embrace the ideas of charity over greed, love and kindness over hate. But embracing those ideas and living by them, that's two different things. See, it's really hard to be kind in prison In this environment of predators, it's very likely that your kindness will be taken for a weakness. This environment isn't usually conducive to rehabilitation. And I have spent many years in different prisons with strict sets of prison politics. And that's why coming to San Quentin was such a culture shock. When I came off the bus, I did the standard penitentiary thing of checking in with my people, showing my paperwork, Which, for those of you who, some of you guys might not know what that means. For those of you who haven't spent half your lives in prisons, what that means is, I I show a list of all the crimes I've ever been convicted of so people can know that I'm not a rapist or a child molester. See, that's the way that we're discriminating here. Usually, if you're one of those, you'll get beat or stabbed, kicked off the yard. And that's what prison is usually like. But when I go to hand my paperwork to this guy, he kind of backs up and he's like, oh, don't worry about that. It's not like that here. And I was like, what do you mean? This is what we do. This is, this is how we establish who's a good, solid convict. And I did not understand what was going on at that moment. The whole situation was just odd. I mean, yeah, I might've made some realizations about charity and was trying to be good like that, but, This is still prison. And I just couldn't wrap my mind around the idea of prison without prison politics. So at first I couldn't really connect with the culture here. My immediate response was to reject it because it's not what I was used to. And looking back, I can see that 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 was a sad, sad but true example of institutionalization. And I continued that pattern of institutionalization for months. I didn't take advantage of all the groups and the programs here. Just worked out and played ball. That's what I was used to for the prior 15 years. When people asked me if I was in any groups, I'd be like, nah, I'm not gonna see the parole board for a while, I'll I'll check all that out later. But eventually, San Quentin got to me. Because one day, I was standing in line to go to the store, which is right by death row. And I watched as they called escort. And I knew it was a death row inmate because he was coming through all shackled up. And I watched him walk by and I thought about how scary it must be to be in his shoes, to be condemned to die. And I must have stood there for a few seconds just stuck. I felt this knot in my stomach as I watched him walk away because it had brought up something that I tried to forget. It reminded me of the week that I spent with the death penalty hanging over my head. See, in my case, the death penalty was a possibility. At my arraignment, when a judge said punishable by death, I lost it. My heart sank in my chest because right when he said it, my mom screamed no. But it wasn't like a word though, it kind of just registered as this wailing, scream, and I had never heard a sound so sad or so painful, ever. And that's all I heard for a week straight. Every time I closed my eyes, all I could see was my frantic struggling and fighting with the guards. I could see them dragging me down that hall. I could see my family going crazy behind that glass at my execution. I could see my mom shrieking as they dragged her baby boy to his death. I saw the electric chair, the gas chamber. I saw the needle going into my arm. And that's all I saw for a week straight. That was the worst week of my life. It's probably why I try to forget it. But when I saw that death row guy, I thought that could have been me, which sparked the thought that I needed to be doing all I can to rehabilitate myself because I could have been condemned just like him. And then what would rehabilitation mean if they just kill me? And that was a realization that San Quentin gave me, the realization that I couldn't make as a youngster. But now that I'm older, I can see the bigger picture, which is why I went and found a group that I could immediately start attending. And I was amazed. I learned a new term called being of service, which reminded me of my realizations about charity. And I picked up some tools for living a responsible life. And that was just the first day of the very first group I ever took. And it's crazy because I took everything I learned and that weekend, I helped my cousin avoid a violent situation. We were at a visit and he had told me his car had been vandalized and he wanted to do something. And I talked him out of following in my footsteps And I would have done that without any group training, but with it, I was able to speak more skillfully and make more sense about why he shouldn't resort to violence. And that showed me that I can take everything I learned and give it back. And that got me motivated to get into all kinds of groups. And I've been going for the most well-rounded and meaningful rehabilitation that I can get. But in doing that, I also learned about things like empathy, victim's awareness. And that's some painful stuff to apply to myself because it taught me to connect the pain in my mom's cries to the pain of my victim's family's cries. It showed me that the loss and grief that my family would feel at my execution is the same loss and grief that I have caused. And that's the harsh truth and horrible consequences of my actions. And that's what seeing that death row guy did. It put me on a path to see these painful truths about myself, but it also showed me that being able to change my life isn't just a mandatory part of my sentence, it's a blessing. And I can't say that I deserve that blessing, but deserving or not, that was the start of a major shift in my life. And I still see myself whenever I see death row inmates or whenever I look at death row and I empathize. I get that knot in my stomach, but I let seeing them be a constant reminder of what I need to be doing. Remembering the worst week of my life puts me in touch with the best parts of myself, which does not make me a great guy, but just the best that I can be. Thank you.
0: That was Philip Melendez, an inmate at San Quentin State Prison. Our last storyteller is Emile DeWeaver.
2: I hate mornings. There's nothing worse than waking up from your dreams to a cell whose six by nine confines stretch into the horizons of your future. It's like waking up in a stone tomb a reminder that to society, to your family, your friends, to your high school sweetheart, you're dead. And you share this tomb with the man who may or may not know that you don't talk to another human being until you've brushed your teeth. <laughs> so, it's rare that you'll see me smile in the morning. It's not a morning person. That's why i never forget my first breakfast in San Quentin. So I step into this noisy child hall, and I'm thinking to myself, what the hell do all these people have to talk about in five in the morning? <laughs> this officer, he says to me, how are you doing this morning? I give him a double take, because at first I think he's messing with me. I just don't have the precedent on which to draw on, to process this kind of act. You see, because in High Desert, where I spent most of my time in this maximum security prison, an officer, he, he would just never ask me how I was doing. That's, that's ridiculous, that's crazy in that world. So I'm looking at this guy and I'm studying and he's kind of nodding, encouraging, and I, and I suddenly realize, this dude is serious. <laughs> he wants to know how I'm doing. So I tell him, I'm like, I'm cool. <laughs> you cool? <laughs> he nods his head, he gives two dumb thumbs up, and he's smiling, I'm smiling. The encounter ends. But the smile continues. You see, this officer, he probably didn't know. But because he took the time to connect with my humanity, when he didn't have to, I suddenly felt inspired to connect with everyone around me. I asked more people that day how they were doing than I'd asked in any given year at any other prison I've been at. And I learned something. This officer, he taught me something. And that's the power that an individual has to change this world with something as small as how are you doing? You see, he improved my mood, and because I was happier throughout the day, I was kinder. And so I envision this cycle where my kindness makes someone else kinder, which makes someone else kinder, which lifts someone else up until we're all smiling on top of the world. Now, I don't want to represent that all of the officers in San Quentin are humanitarians just not. <laughs> but I think it's important to note that this story is not an isolated incident. See, I live in West Block on the fourth tier. And every night I listen to this officer, he's coming down the tier. And I can hear him because he's stopping at people's cell and he's asking them, how are they doing? And what are they doing this weekend? And how are they feeling? You know, just things that human beings say to each other when they want to let each other know that you matter. So every night he comes to my cell, and no matter what I'm doing, I just stop. And I tell him, I say, good night, brother. And he continues, and he finishes his count, preparing to go home to his family. But before he goes, he always says, good night, brothers. Brothers, sisters, Good night.
3: The song you heard woven throughout this Live Law special was Freedom, composed and performed by David Jossi. You can hear the full version of David's song and all of the stories presented live at San Quentin, as well as see photos from the night by going to our website, lifeofthelaw.org. The original version of this episode, episode 73, Live at San Quentin, was produced by Jonathan Hirsch. I handled minor production updates on this version, episode 125, a rebroadcast. Live at San Quentin was a co-production of Life of the Law, the San Quentin News, the San Quentin Prison Report, the Society of Professional Journalists, Northern California Chapter, and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Life of the Law is a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and you can still make a tax deductible donation to help cover the direct cost of producing our stories. So take a minute, visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a much appreciated tax deductible donation. This production was funded in part by the Open Society Foundation, the Law and Society Association, A Blade of Grass, the National Science Foundation, and by you, our listeners. Life of the Law is part of Panoply, the podcast network from Slate that connects sophisticated listeners with top publishers and thinkers. Visit www.panoply.fm to see their full roster of shows. A very special thanks to Greg Eskridge, Juan Haynes, Nigel Poor, Lewis Scott, Rasan Thomas, and Tommy Winfrey for their months of work co-producing the event inside San Quentin Prison. Thank you also to Warden Ron Davis, Chief Deputy Warden Kelly Mitchell, Lieutenant Sam Robinson, Raphael Casali, Steve Emmerich, and Father George Williams of the San Quentin Catholic Chapel for their support. Next on Life of the Law, part one of a miniseries looking at the possibility of pursuing justice for war crimes set in Uganda and in the context of the Lord's Resistance Army. We hope you'll listen. This is Tony Gannon, senior producer of Life of the Law. Thank you for listening.
6: Yeah, yeah. This song is dedicated to everybody incarcerated now Everybody locked up worldwide, yeah. They got me dressed in a paper suit, shackled on a gray goose. Looking out the window wishing I could cut these chains loose. You know I California state to tamper with the evidence to make the jury hate you. LA Times articles paint up a different picture. Don't believe the hype they type just to convict you. DA coaching their witnesses to switch the testimony up. You stuck, they gon' get you. Murder was the case that they gave me No Johnny Cochran, no dream team To save me, falling to my knees Asking God for forgiveness, tears Falling down my face as I'm studying the scriptures Praying for the man that lost His life in his tragedy, praying for My son growing up without his daddy They say that God talks to us In our dreams, so when I wake up i just trying To figure out what it means Freedom, I had a dream I could Buy my way to freedom I had a dream I could buy my way to freedom I had a dream I could buy my way to freedom to freedom. I said freedom. I had a dream I could buy my way to freedom. I had a dream I could buy my way to freedom. I had a dream I could buy my way to freedom.